0: Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we consider the self-help catastrophe, including why self-help might not be working for you, and what to do if you think it is. This contemplation has two audiences, really. On the one hand, it is a contemplation about self-help for those who want to think about a tremendously significant cultural phenomenon. On the other hand, it's a dialogue with people who consume self-help and who might want to look deeply into why and what the nature and consequences of self-help might be. In either case, this is one of a series of contemplations on a surprisingly important cultural topic that will allow us to shed light on some essential and truly pragmatic philosophical ideas, ideas that can have a major impact on our lives. Let's begin by acknowledging that the self-help industrial complex is huge. Narrowly speaking, we're talking about more than $10 billion a year. In terms of revenue, self-help does better than Major League Baseball, and it's darn close to the NFL. We seem to love this stuff. We buy books, listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos, go to firewalks and cacao ceremonies, take workshops, participate in webinars and online courses. We go on retreats to exotic locations. Including ayahuasca vacations in Peru and mindfulness and yoga retreats all over the world. We put a lot of time into it. And it's not just an industry, but an industrial complex with causes and effects that reach deeply and broadly into the culture, much further than the narrow $10 billion figure indicates. That figure doesn't include things like the fact. That self help can prompt us to join gyms, to take big vacations or big trips that are supposed to be part of a self help journey. Uh, We might start taking yoga classes. Indeed, yoga is typically part of the self help industrial complex as we're going to be thinking about it here. And that industry alone is worth upwards of $30 billion a year in just the United States. The wellness industry is also part of the larger self-help industrial complex as we will look at it and contemplate it here and the global wellness industry is estimated to be worth 4.2 trillion dollars that's larger than the global tobacco industry the effects of the self-help industrial complex are in fact larger than the effects of the tobacco industry, and there might be some strange similarities between the two. After all, the people who sell you cigarettes don't want you to stop smoking. I think any individual in the self-help industry wants us to succeed. I don't think any of them want us to fail, but the industry itself does not have any motivation to get anyone to stop putting money into it. It's something to ponder. The self-help industrial complex, as we're going to contemplate it here, includes everything from popular psychologists and physicians to metaphysical, religious, and New Age approaches, all the way through to pretty rational-minded business approaches. It's really important to understand that the self-help catastrophe includes approaches that sound very scientific or philosophically rational, and that means hundreds of books, television spots, workshops, webinars, and retreats from people with PhDs and medical degrees, people who talk about things like the brain and its structures, and who give us the lowdown on all sorts of experiments in positive psychology, social psychology, and more. They tell us about how our partner might have an overactive cingulate gyrus, or how we can use a handful of mind hacks to get more done and feel better about ourselves. Some of these highly educated professionals make incredible sums of money talking about the brain, even though none of us should try and tap our lovers on the cingulate gyrus. The self-help catastrophe also includes many seemingly rational and pragmatic business approaches. Self-help for entrepreneurs and high-powered executives is still self-help, and many people have a particular fascination with self-help gurus whom wealthy people endorse, as well as the self-help books that wealthy people write. For some of us, having made millions of dollars is a special criterion for being able to offer self-help advice that we want to hear. Whatever your favorite flavor of self-help, maybe you've had some really interesting experiences and insights. Maybe you still feel like something is missing, perhaps even after all those great insights, like something isn't quite working in spite of all the positive endorsements of the self-help books that you've been reading. We could be so bold as to suggest that even if self-help seems to be helping, there might still be a problem with it. Could we at least open ourselves to the possibility that The reason there is such a demand for self-help, and the reason self-help seems only partially effective for so many people, is that there is something we need, and whatever that something is that we truly need, self-help can't give it to us, even if it seems to be giving at least a handful of people something good. Could we also open ourselves to the possibility that the reason we're so hungry for self-help is that something deep inside of us senses that our lives are somehow fundamentally out of whack? Given the massive scale of the self-help industrial complex, it's clear that people are hungry for help. People want to be happy. When I was teaching in the university, my students consistently told me that what they most wanted in life was to help the world and to be happy. Generally speaking, people want a joyful, meaningful life. They want a job that feels like a life purpose, relationships that feel authentic, profound, and mutually nourishing. We all want to experience peace, love, healing, and joy. It's no secret that we want these things. It's no secret that our culture doesn't seem to make it easy for us to get them. So we turn to self-help. But self-help seems to be a catastrophe. In a general way, the self-help catastrophe has to do with the proliferation of fragmented and fragmenting wisdom. Again, millions of people are trying to be happy, trying to make a meaningful life for themselves. They buy books and magazines, hire coaches, follow self-help gurus, attend workshops and retreats, download courses. In short, they get sucked into the self-help industrial complex. Now, what do we find in the self-help industrial complex? From a philosophical perspective, from the perspective of someone like Socrates, Confucius, Jesus, or Buddha, there is a sense in which the self-help industrial complex makes the world into a tinderbox, and it turns its customers loose on the world with sparklers. The wisdom traditions would see self-help as often fragmented and fragmenting. But because self-help contains fragments of wisdom, it offers concepts and tactics that work because wisdom is what works. However, because self-help is partial and fragmented wisdom, employing it creates negative side effects. Very similar to taking a prescription drug that comes with side effects that range from incontinence to death. Again, in a strict philosophical sense, things are like this. They really are like this, but it's a nuanced situation. So We have to be careful, we have to be a little more circumspect. After all, what we find in the self-help industrial complex are self-help teachers with very good intentions. Many of them are highly intelligent and creative, some with advanced degrees in the sciences or social sciences, some with incredible life experiences that inform their claims the self-help teachers genuinely believe they have found something that can help people get what they want. They do everything they can to help people and they sincerely believe that what they offer can work, that it really does work. But things are not so simple because the self-help catastrophe takes place as a result of a system. Self-help arises in a system in which the more people succeed in self-help, the more problems we face in the world as a whole. The self-help industry is a catastrophe because to whatever extent it works, it tends to create more problems. It's a further catastrophe in that, to the extent it doesn't work, it's wasting precious energy that could go to making people more deeply happy, helping people live an even more fulfilling purpose, and actually making the world a better place. We're going to get clearer and clearer about all of this, and we're going to get more specific, but. This is for some people a sensitive topic because we're, again, touching on a vast industrial complex that many of us have participated in in one way or another. So we have to take it slow. We need to respect all the wonderful people engaged in self-help as teachers and as consumers because these people have good hearts and good intentions and good minds. We are going to need several contemplations to get close to an intelligent and sophisticated view of the self-help catastrophe, especially if we want to get out of the self-help catastrophe and actually start following a more skillful and realistic path of joy that will fulfill our purpose and help the world. Once again, we have to be clear that many people who have engaged in self-help as teachers of it and as students of it have tried to help the world sincerely. Many of them feel happier than they did before their self-help journey began. Some self-help gurus may even try to address a few of the issues we're raising here. But if those teachers exist, they remain pretty marginal. In any case, we need to apply some careful thinking. While we shouldn't say that nothing good comes from self help, it might be very important for us, now more than ever, to step back and look from a broader and more sensitive perspective. There are two major aspects of this broader perspective an individual and a cultural aspect. The first has to do with the ego and what we might call the soul. Soul is not an easy word to deal with in our culture. We tried to illuminate the concept of soul in the contemplation called The Monster No Human or God Can Resist, and you might want to check that out. For now, let's think of soul as our total intelligence, as the fullness of our being that goes beyond what we're consciously aware of at any given time and also goes beyond what we conventionally refer to as the ego. Now, the issue from this perspective, the perspective of the individual, the perspective of soul, is that something that gets the ego excited may nevertheless go against the demands of the soul. We'll get into that in a little more detail later on, but first let's briefly mention the other issue, the cultural one. This too will need some detail because it may feel uncomfortable at first, and it demands thinking about the cultural system that's not easy to do. Now this issue is one that we mentioned before, actually, and that is that all self-help takes place as part of a particular cultural system. To elaborate that notion just a little bit, we could say this. If the cultural system in question contains internal contradictions or incoherencies, then almost every experience of self-help is going to come with consequences of harm. That harm might not seem like self-harm because the harms might occur most overtly in other places in the system, and in fact, that can make them hard to detect. In other words, the harm that comes from self-help might not be easy to see in our own city, our own family, our own psyche. Those harms might be subtle and hard to detect close to home and yet they may be rather pronounced elsewhere in the system. In any case, the problem remains. If a culture has fundamental contradictions or incoherencies in it, then self-help is actually a kind of harm. A harm to others, and also a kind of self-harm. That sounds kind of funky, doesn't it? Self-help can actually amount to self-harm. That's part of the catastrophe. What we're getting at is that there is some kind of deep systemic problem here. And there are a variety of ways of trying to illuminate it. Maybe the simplest way is to put it like this the difference between what we do and how reality functions inevitably creates real harms, and both we and others will suffer for it in one way or another. That's fairly simple, but it might sound a bit abstract, so we could try to make it a little more intimate. We could maybe put it this way. There is a profound difference between what the soul demands and what our ego tends to do. For instance, the soul says leap, and the ego takes us skydiving. The soul says take the inward journey, and the ego takes us on a trip to Bali. If there happens to be a yoga retreat or self-help workshop in Bali, the ego feels doubly satisfied in how it has reacted to the soul's calling. A crucial question is this one. What if the soul is telling us, I don't want to play this game? For a moment, let's at least allow for the possibility. Imagine your soul perceives the way this culture functions. It perceives the way you were educated. It perceives the jobs available and what those jobs really entail. It perceives the way we live and work the absence of a deep sense of meaning, purpose, and joy, the absence of a rootedness in wisdom, love, and beauty, rootedness in nature, rootedness in true community. The soul perceives all of this and it says to us, I don't want to play this game. Keep in mind the soul does not necessarily say this in a sentence like that. In fact, that would be strange. We don't see a flashing neon sign in our mind that says, I don't want to play this game. Rather, we get intimate non-linguistic communications. Those communications might feel confusing, and receiving them with even unconscious understanding might make us feel even more confused. If our soul tells us that it doesn't want to play this game, what are we going to do instead? We have no viable alternatives because the soul is rejecting the basic spirit of the culture. Now, we might experience this communication from the soul as a profound lack of direction, a feeling of being lost, a feeling of depression, anxiety, a feeling that we don't have a clear, meaning and purpose, a meaning and purpose that really means something. And we might not register any of this on a conscious level. All we know consciously is that somehow we don't feel happy. Maybe we also don't feel healthy. And one of the problems is the culture doesn't teach us how to turn to the soul, to listen to it, to find out what it has to tell us to receive its criticisms of the culture and its guidance on what to do next. Instead, what the culture has done is it's taught us where to place the blame for the unhappiness and unhealthiness we feel. And so, without consulting the soul, we have lots of ideas about why we aren't happy. Our career is stalled. Our relationship is stale. We aren't making enough money. We need a real vacation. We need to join a gym or a yoga studio. We need to buy a new car and find a better romance. In the midst of feeling badly about ourselves and in the midst of all these ideas about what's wrong with our life and why we're to blame, suddenly the self-help guru comes along and gives the ego exactly what the ego wants to hear. Together, the ego and the self-help guru convince us of the following. It's not that we don't want to play this game anymore. Rather, it's that we want to win it. Now we have meaning and purpose, it seems. Now there's a feeling of direction because we're going to start a business. We're going to move up in our career. We're going to increase profits at our firm. We're going to get that promotion. We're going to have romance. We're going to get lots of really fun toys and take meaningful vacations and have money to give to charity and have a stock portfolio that works for us and great financial savvy. It all fits into the cultural spirit. Now we have a way to see ourselves as responsible and successful players of the game. We know who was to blame all along. It was us. We were sucking. We can stop sucking. We can stop being a loser. We have a project, a purpose. We have a way to feel satisfied and a place to direct our energy. Not only that, but because we'll have meaningful vacation and time for yoga, and time for friends and a way to support our favorite charitable causes, the ego is over the moon with its deliberate misinterpretation of the soul's calling. Ironically, the notion that we can become happy by winning this culture's game goes directly against most of the world's venerable philosophical, spiritual, and religious traditions. And we should keep in mind that the soul responds to something vaster and more profound than our ego's or our culture's errors. Facing our culture's errors is essential. Our culture is far from perfect, we all know that. And to put our original thought differently, the difference between our culture's way of life And the way the world actually works is the source of major problems. Our culture teaches us how to live, how to think, how to relate to each other, how to relate to nature, how to relate to our own mind, how to relate to any sense of sacredness in the world. And we're talking about sacredness in a way that includes religious and non-religious perspectives here. All right, if the soul doesn't want us to play this game, if the soul wants us to become attuned with the way the world actually works, rather than attuned with the culture's and the ego's delusions and the self-help guru's partial insights, then we're naturally going to remain unsatisfied by self-help. We may keep hungering for it, but it won't fill our deep need. Something in self-help tempts us, because the soul is asking us for more. But the soul will never fully accept the version of more that the self-help guru offers. Because, at the end of the day, self-help is often more of the same and the soul is fed up with more of the same. So is the world. But the self-help industrial complex knows how to help us rationalize, and it knows how to tempt us. The self-help guru proclaims that no one should ever limit our dreams. This is an example of fragmented and fragmenting wisdom. It is either misleading or ignorant to say such a thing because wisdom, love, and beauty do limit our dreams. Alternatively, we could say the divine limits our dreams or the wonder of life limits our dream. Our dreams are properly limited to being wise, loving, and beautiful. We're certainly free to dream about whatever cravings our ego might have, but that does not make those dreams meaningful or worthy of pursuit when evaluated by the standards of our own highest values. We might try and convince ourselves in countless ways. We might try to rationalize with endless cleverness so that the dreams we let the self-help guru talk us into start to seem like they match our highest values and ideals. But our ideals, our highest values, are a kind of limit. Moreover, we really do need to see that wisdom demands that we sense how the world has a say in our dream. Our dreams have to be with and about the world we all live in together, and what incredible things we can make possible in this very world. The issue is not that we aren't allowed to dream the impossible dream, but that however impossible our dreams, they still have to have their roots in wisdom, love, and beauty and in the living world we share. Otherwise, the self-help catastrophe hypes us up to realize dreams that end up degrading the world and limiting our soul. Isn't that ironic? It is self-help that often limits us and when it unleashes our partial insights however exciting they feel and when it turns loose our fragmented vision our fragmented wisdom however clearly we think we are seeing the inevitable result is suffering for ourselves and others let's take a simple example now keep in mind The example we're going to work with touches on one aspect of this very complex issue, and it's a simplified example. We need to think more deeply than this particular example, but it's a decent one, and it's important to be concrete, even at this early stage in our thinking. Now, this particular example could feel charged, but let's try and think it through. Okay. Imagine you set the following goal. You decide, I'm going to be so wealthy, so successful, that I will have my own private jet. After all, this self-help guru has told me that no one can limit my dreams, and my dreams include my own jet. Or maybe we feel a little more conservative, and we might put it something like this. I will be so wealthy and so successful that I can travel anywhere I want with no problem. I can fly first class, stay in nice places, and see the world. If we set such a goal, ethically speaking, we should understand the consequences of it. What are the consequences? Well, building a private jet and then flying and maintaining it requires a massive intervention into living ecology. If we were to buy and operate a private jet, humans and non-humans would suffer. Even if we just fly on a commercial airline, imagine what we're talking about. Imagine carrying, say, 150 pounds, 20,000 miles. If we fly from New York to Bali, that's the sort of distance we'll cover. Now imagine just a few thousand people decide to make an investment in their self help program and they get on a plane for a self help retreat or a yoga adventure in Patagonia, Costa Rica, Thailand, Vietnam. Or imagine that a few thousand people follow their self help guru's advice. And they all start making more money, enough money, to start taking more vacations. So all of these people start racking up miles. A few thousand of them would be a fraction of the self-help audience. And yet even a few thousand people means over half a million pounds of human weight, plus whatever their luggage weighs, is now being moved all over the planet. Let's pause here to reflect. Are we suggesting that no one can travel? Not exactly. The issue of travel in particular can feel so charged that we are going to consider it further in a special addendum to the present contemplation. And I encourage you to think through that as well. But for now, let's just try and recognize that a part of the catastrophe of the self-help industrial complex is that it may, in fact, be making travel increasingly unethical. And we're using the word catastrophe advisedly. The industry is potentially catastrophic in its impact. Part of the catastrophe In the self-help catastrophe is that self-help is based on consumption. We buy books, we go to workshops, we go to seminars and retreats. All of that uses resources. And if our attempts at self-help happen to be financially successful, well, then our resource consumption often takes a trip into the stratosphere. We can now buy new cars, new clothes, expensive wine, nice jewelry, bigger homes, technological gadgets that take more resources to produce. And we start taking more vacations. We start traveling more because we can afford to. All of this entertains the ego to no end. Meanwhile, the soul wonders what in the world we're doing wasting our time with this stuff. Thousands of people do these sorts of things, thinking they are free. Yet no philosophical sage in the history of the world has taught us that freedom is being able to fly to Patagonia or being able to buy or do whatever we want. The teachings of Jesus, Buddha, Socrates, Confucius, the Peacemaker, and others contain no suggestion that this is what they meant by freedom, by wisdom, by love, by beauty. Even if we are atheistic scientists, we can recognize that there is some higher order beyond our ego, that wisdom does not mean we get to have everything or anything we want. If we happen to be more theistic or spiritual, we might recognize this thing that transcends us as the divine or as some sense of sacredness. But in any case, we can all recognize that something greater than our ego is at work in this life, in this world. Now, some of this might be making sense to you. It might be provoking some skepticism. If you feel doubtful, Let's try and consider the context of our self-help catastrophe, because the meaning of self-help is constituted by the context in which it takes place. It's not the only factor, but it's essential. It's just like anything else. Often we have an impossible time relating a funny situation or funny joke to someone because we say, well, you had to be there. The context really determines something. And so we can ask, what kind of context do we have here? Do we live in a culture deeply rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty? Hold that question gently. We could suggest that the self-help catastrophe is a manifestation of, of a certain style of consciousness, the basic style of consciousness of our culture. And that style of consciousness goes all together with ecological degradation. That's what we see when we look out at the world. Self-help that dispels this style of consciousness Is the primary exception to the catastrophe we're talking about. But no form of self help escapes the risk of making things worse. We're trying to think systemically, and that's not very easy to do. Let's try and put the issue another way. If the saints and sages of every culture, have told us, and if every major philosophical, spiritual, and religious tradition also tells us that true happiness comes from wisdom, love, and beauty, then how good a context does our culture make for true happiness? We could ask the question as simply as this, do we want to define our happiness and success in material terms? Does love seem to abide a material definition? Do wisdom or beauty or a meaningful life seem to abide material definition? Are they about founding companies, buying yachts, or making a certain salary? We could. Ask the question yet another way to get at it. Does our education system seem centered on wisdom, love, and beauty? How many classes did we have on how to love each other, how to practice healthy relationships, how to communicate well in deep conversations or genuinely creative dialogue? How many classes did we have on how to be wise, truly wise, how to grow up as an elder in our community, how to be truly happy and joyful? How many classes did we have that taught us what compassion is and how to practice it? We could also ask the question in another way. Is our economy based on the cultivation of wisdom, love, and beauty? Countless self-help gurus plug us into this economy. But how does the economy function? We measure gross domestic product, not gross domestic insight, not gross domestic beauty, not gross domestic well-being, not anything that feels rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. We cannot evade the contradictions and incoherencies in the economy, no matter how much the self-help industrial complex tries to rationalize our participation in it. Does our culture focus on living in harmony with nature? It's another way we could ask the question that gets us to the heart of the self-help catastrophe. Are we taught how to get in touch with the wisdom, love, and beauty that nature can release in us when we know how to properly relate with it. When we think of all the advertisements and all the entertainment of our culture, when we think of the way politics and economics functions in our culture, What does it seem we are being taught to value? What really matters? What makes things happen according to the way our culture actually operates? We can find no serious philosophical, spiritual, or religious tradition that encourages us to center our lives on money or material gain On branding ourselves, on selling ourselves, on making apps, writing code, trading stocks in a stock market, taking trips on jets, yachts, or cruise ships. And yet, our entire culture is more or less obsessed with these things. Imagine the reaction of Socrates, Buddha, or Christ being told that they need to brand themselves more effectively. Money, power, celebrity. Do we really want these things? Better put, does the soul want these things? Or does the soul want true wealth, true empowerment, true health and healing, and a reputation based on the content of our character? I am not a fundamentalist preacher here trying to get us all to repudiate mammon. I think instead we should be very realistic. Philosophy or love wisdom is about being realistic and skillful in our lives. Philosophy is the art of success. But the success of love wisdom or philosophy, the success that love wisdom offers us, it demands honesty. If we're honest with ourselves, Do we think on our deathbed we're going to say, I wish I had made more money. I wish I had invented an app. I wish I had branded myself more effectively. It may be worthwhile here to note the work of Bronnie Ware. You may have heard of her Australian nurse who did palliative care the kind of work offered to patients in the final days or weeks of their lives. She began publishing the insights of her patients on a blog, and she eventually published a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Here are those top five regrets. First, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Second, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Third, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Fourth, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And fifth, I wish I had let myself be happier. None of these things seem so intractable, and yet these are apparently common regrets of the dying. We have to keep in mind that many people will claim to have no regrets. We can't be sure if those people really do have them, but just prefer not to say, or if they have let themselves feel satisfied with the ego's bait-and-switch for some of the soul's demands. People who are facing death may also simply let go of everything in the face of death, including things that did, in fact, waste their time in life and did cause suffering for themselves and others. That kind of letting go has its wisdom. And at the same time, we prepare ourselves to die well by learning best how to live well. We may think ourselves beyond the regrets of the dying, but we wouldn't see these patterns of regret repeating themselves in dying people if we really trained ourselves for dying well by training ourselves for living well. And perhaps most importantly, we just wouldn't see so much suffering and stupidity in the world if we had nothing at all worth doing better in our lives, with our lives. Will we regret that we didn't live and love more passionately? That we didn't let ourselves be happier? That we didn't let ourselves be healers and creators? Not creators of companies and products, but creators of culture. A culture more rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. That marks a major difference between the self-help catastrophe and what we might invite ourselves into instead. While the self-help guru tries to excite us into creating a better company and a better retirement portfolio, a wisdom-based approach helps us find the inspiration to create a better culture and a better sense of healing and wholeness. It invites us to see what the self help catastrophe might make us regret if we could look at it with careful thinking while listening to the soul's calling. Will we regret that we tried so hard to do our lives instead of dancing them? That we left our soul unexplored because We spent so much time exploring money-making opportunities. That we let ourselves remain cut off from the natural world and from each other, even from our own soul. That we didn't really see what we are and what life is. That we didn't do more to let wisdom, love, and beauty live themselves through us and thereby illuminate the world. What do you think? Why are we so fascinated with self-help? And in what ways is the self-help industrial complex furthering our problems, or even creating more problems? We will continue to inquire into these questions, so if you have Reflections, comments, suggestions, or questions about today's contemplation or the general topic of self help and the self help catastrophe, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org. We'll address some of them in a future session, and we will consider other things the soul might hunger for and which the self help industrial complex tries to feed with. Fragmentations, approximations, and even imitations of what the soul actually demands. Our soul seems to want us to turn toward healing, wholeness, meaning, purpose, and joy. The soul seems to hunger for insight and inspiration, love and liberation, connection and celebration. How can we get out of the self help catastrophe? and satisfy these hungers of the soul for our own benefit and the benefit of the world? Again, we'll continue to contemplate these and other questions together. Until then, this is Nikos Patadakis reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.